Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Paratalk and on this episode something a little bit different but not different but different. I've got Stephen and Dave with me and for some of you out there you're already going to know who these guys are but if you were uh, a young person in the 70s, the 80s growing up and you were kind of into sci-fi and horror and all that stuff then uh, Scarred for Life, the book, is going to be on your shelf, I'm sure it is. So, Dave and Steve, welcome to Paratalk. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Thank no, you. That's all right. Now, I'm going to start with you, Steve, uh, because uh, I have a little bit of a question, and I'm going to be, I'm going to hand it to you first, and then I'm going to jump to Dave. Uh, how did this book come about? Because it's a really peculiar book. Because, I mean, give give the listeners sort of an idea of of where this came from and how it all came together. Right. Well. Um... Basically, I worked in a branch of Forbidden Planet in the, here in Liverpool for mm-hmm. 23 years, up until a couple of years ago. Dave, I was going to do, I always do this at our live shows. I was about oh. to say our oldest customer. <laughs> <laughs> He's our longest standing customer. <laughs> My pleasure, Dave. Um, yeah, he was there before I started working there in 1997. So Dave was there from day one, essentially. And as you do, you kind of get to know certain customers and they become a friend of the shop and then they just become your friend. It was one morning in work. It was really quiet. There was nothing to do. So there's me, Dave was in and me mate Col, who I was working with that morning. We just got into one of those conversations that friends get into, you know, I kind of, Oh, do you remember that film? Oh, did you used to read that comic? Or, Oh, do you remember that TV show? Remember those toys? And that kind of went on just being nostalgic about the seventies and eighties. And it was only at the end of the conversation, when, say, a delivery came in and me and Cole had to get back to work, that I realised that, and I'm not exaggerating, every single thing we talked about, every film, every comic, every TV show, sweet even, were all supernatural or horror-themed or violent, shocking, scary, occasionally racist, some of the sitcoms, yeah. and most of them were aimed at children. And I just got really fired up. I wanted to read the book about this era, not just a, a nostalgia book about the 70s and 80s. I wanted to read one specifically about the dark pop culture, the dark side of growing up in that time. Mm. And I couldn't find one. I was absolutely gobsmacked. I just assumed there would be a spate of these books. Couldn't find any on Amazon, any in Waterstones, any booksellers anywhere. And it just struck me that no one had written it. So the next day in work, I was again talking to me mate Cole. And he said, well, you like writing. You enjoy it. Why don't you write the book? And I literally laughed in his face, but I went home, got a notebook, started making notes, started making a list of subjects. And I thought, well, I can do it as a hobby on and off. Probably won't happen. Then I really got into it. I thought, no, this is a good idea, this. I remember after a week of getting notes together and getting the list of subjects together, realizing what an enormous Titanic task this was going to be. Yeah. Dave was in the following week. And I said to Dave, you know, you've always been interested in writing yourself as a hobby. I said, well, do you want to join up. Do you want to write this book? We probably won't finish it, but it'll be a laugh. It'll be something to do. Obviously, Dave said, yeah. And we did. We broke through that wall. We thought, now we're going to do this because we have that many of our friends saying what a great yeah. idea it was. You kind of talk to your mates and go, well, that's, that's striking a chord. That's striking a nerve with our generation. So, I mean, it took us three and a half, was it three and a half years, Dave? Three and a half long, long years, yeah. Yeah, of research, writing, uh, watching TV shows, reading comics, so much research 
and volume one came out in March 2017. And that was the thing, this is it, Dave, I always said to you, if we manage to sell 200 copies in my lifetime, I'll be overwhelmed, I'll be made up. What was it? What was it again? What was it we did in... It was well. You well. You said if we sell two hundred, would be that'd be amazing. And I say, oh, well, let's sell, let's sell a thousand. And I was the wild optimist of the group. Yeah, uh, and we're currently at around eleven thousand copies sold. That's that's crazy. So uh, I'm doing surprising. live comedy shows. Yeah, live um, comedy, yeah. There's loads of other projects we can't really talk about. A couple, I'd say at embargo, Dave. I'd say yeah. Well, there's one. There's one yeah. very big one, isn't there? There's one quite prestigious. Yeah, very, yeah. We, we we can't talk about. This is the thing it's it's genuinely struck a chord yeah because if you're of a certain age i don't want to say old but it's it's struck it's, i mean we know it's a weird time to grow up with in yeah anyone who's, who was there but after writing these two books with a third on the way it's more apparent to me and dave and i guess everyone who's written wrote, read them more apparent than ever what a bizarre 20, 25 years that was. Uh, I have an understanding of what's in the book, and I, I know that it's very child-centric, as in growing up, but if you think back and you put everything together like you've done, you've it's more of an encyclopedia of growing up in the, the 70s and 80s. I think that when you look at the children's programmes, and this is my other question, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this over to Dave, but... Do you think that when you look back and you've got all these stories, you've done your research, do you kind of step back a minute and go, wow, there was a there was a very kind of a, a cloak of the occult with some of these children's programs where everything was very supernatural but very dark as well at the same time? Do you, did you find that? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at some of the programs. I mean, Rent-A-Ghost. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the premise of that show is incredibly dark. Fred Mumford is a man who has died. He's yeah. drowned. His body has never been found. So, his parents don't know he's dead. so basically, you've got Fred Mumford there with his actual corpse somewhere under the sea being eaten by the fish, which I think yeah. is an incredibly dark premise. Yeah. The Ghosts of Motley Hall, quite a lot of the, you know, again, a, a lighthearted kids' show uh, where the premise is that all these people have died in terrible circumstances. They've broken the necks, they've drowned down wells, they've died of consumption, whatever. But it's, yeah, there's a lot of programs where the central premise is the dead. There's yeah. uh, there's one called uh, Nobody's House, I think. That was a Tyne Tease one. Uh, there was, there's there's so many of them. I mean, and obviously in the 70s, people were watching stuff like Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, and quite a lot of the, you know, like sweets, like um, tree bore mummies with the, the tales of ghosts and horrors on the inside of the wrappers. We were just surrounded, immersed in this paranormal culture it was it touched every aspect of our childhood lives i'd say you wrote the big piece about children of the stones in volume one yes. i mean that's yeah. one of the most occult it's it's yeah. just full-on adult folk horror as a children's show it's actually really complex i mean watching it as an adult i had to have like a piece of paper to write down so i could follow through what's actually happening because it's obviously it's a time loop thing and but yeah a lot of the, they don't talk down to kids i think that's the thing you've got to you, you take from this that they don't talk down to kids. They made the programs they wanted to make, and the kid with some fairly mature themes, and that was just the reality of our childhoods. I think. Children of the Stones. If you were uh, like a uh, playing cards, and you had Children of the Stones cards, like a top trumps. The only thing, yes. that, the only thing it could beat that for 
for being complicated would be something like Sapphire and Steel. Because when that came out and I watched that as a child, I had absolutely no clue what was going on. But it was intriguing. I don't think many. No, the stories were completely bizarre. But as a child, I was completely... I mean, I've still got the box set now. And and I recently watched it and I'm like thinking, no, I still don't know what's going on. You know, it's quite a high concept idea, yeah. Especially for like seven o'clock, seven thirty on a on a yeah. weekday night, you know, when you yeah down after your tea, and then suddenly you've got this idea of these two sort of time agents, whatever they are, just battling time itself. I think again, it's sophistic- and it doesn't ever go into the law. It's basically it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And it gives you the pieces, and you can put you can put most of it together yourself, yeah. but you don't know who the their bosses are who Sapphire no. and Steel are working for, and you do meet other agents, and they've got a history. They know each other, they're mm. friends, and it's kind of, it's almost like you're you're always seeing only half of the story. And I think that's the, that was part of its appeal for me. It was it was just so like you said, it was I could follow the stories, just about. Yeah, you could but, follow them, but uh, it was that kind of backstory that you didn't. There's like a logic to it, isn't it, with like clocks and mirrors and things yes. like that. You've kind of got to piece together what yes. what, what the rules are for that. Mm. Uh, it's almost know. like Twin Peaks style before mm. Twin Peaks. Because Twin Peaks is very similar. It's There's a law and there's a, there are rules to the Twin Peaks universe, but mm-hmm. only David Lynch knows what they are. Yeah. And he lets you know in bits and pieces. And I think... That, this is the thing, baby. You just mentioned it was on at seven o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the evening, yeah. and that was that kind of um, give us a clue, name that yeah, tune, slot. maybe on and suddenly or something like that, you know. But th- that's it before Coronation Street, Sapphire and Steel, followed by Coronation Street. You cannot imagine that kind of left turn of the lights into surreal drama, can you? These days, I don't, you know. You're not going to get that. You, that was only in the seventies and the eighties that you got stuff like that, where it's just so experimental and. Um, weird and just out there uh i'm gonna i'm gonna ask Stephen this but do you think that um you notice you touched on something there dave that that uh is 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 interesting that when they bring out these shows and they bring out these stories do you think and i'll direct this to Stephen. do you think that it's important that because back then that they didn't have a lot of money for budgets and stuff do you think that um they had to make a good story. They had to make it interesting. They had to make it like you, you didn't want to get out of your seat because uh, th- there was no money for a, for a set. For, for you know Everything was made of cardboard. And they had to make a good story to, to make it worthwhile, make it you watch it. Well, I think... Um, I don't know if it's so much that they had to, but I know in, whenever Doctor Who came up in the 1970s and yeah. the 80s, it was always in competition with... Star Wars, Star Wars changed everything. Yeah, oh yeah. Because that was the big blockbuster. Yeah. Suddenly special effects were at the forefront. And you can't compete on a BBC budget or an ITV budget for that matter. But I think it was just the style of the times. Television in the 70s was still very much in a kind of televised theatre mode. Yes, yes. That it was starting to come out of in the 1980s. It was starting to become more filmic and cinematic. But a lot of it was the bare minimum of sets and people speaking very clearly and very loudly and very stagily. But I think story-wise, I think it was just, it was just the way things are. That was another thing we found when we were researching the books, Dave. A lot of these TV shows we already knew about, we grew up with, or we'd read about at least. And there's a few that we stumbled across that we'd never heard of in our lives. There's one called Shadows of Fear, that I knew nothing about. I just 
stumbled across it yeah. on the internet one evening and thought oh, that sounds interesting what's the dvd box set in a sale it's a anthology psychological horror thriller series one of the best things i've seen in years there's like not a bad episode it's stunning but yeah. it fell through the cracks because it was just another brilliant tv show in a welter a raft of brilliant tv shows i think people talk about a golden age of television and I, I can't speak for everyone else but i think me and dave we certainly kind of think well it is but we've been there we've done that i claudius the sweeney god knows how many incredible beautifully written tv shows i don't know that it's th that they had to be brilliant they just were so i think as well one of the issues is the cameras weren't as mobile back then as they are now so it had to be quite stagey yeah that's true the yeah you know they, they couldn't move the cameras around like obviously nowadays with steady cam and things like that you can move around and be more kinetic with things the cameras being fixed in position essentially means that you had to be stagey you had to be on one set and so yeah when you've got those limitations the dialogue naturally comes to the fore it's to do with television itself which all changes in the 1980s because mm. now in the 80s you've got your there's a there's a portable in every room yeah you've got video recorders so you can you've got the option of going out and then watching that tv show tomorrow and watching it again and again and again in the 1970s we've got three channels so there isn't as much anxiety i think from TV companies that someone's going to switch over because there's probably opera on BBC Two. There's probably a really terrible sitcom on ITV. So BBC can kind of relax and go, well, we can just tell a brilliant story without having to bombard people with, I don't know, cliffhangers or twists or whatever. Whereas now everything's fragmented. I think there is more of a clamour. You have to watch this. You must yeah. binge this now. Yeah. Whereas we could just chill out and watch Sapphire and Steel and going to school the next day and go did you see it did anyone understand it no no but wasn't it brilliant <laughs> but the pacing's totally different in those 70s dramas oh I mean, completely like yes. see, because you, I mean, like, like steve says you've got to capture the attention now because mm. there's a hundred more channels there waiting for you and waiting for you to switch to them so so nowadays it's far more pow 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 here's a story here's it's you know you hit the ground running with stories now but i think you could definitely say that for example sapphire is still a slow build yeah it's, it's atmosphere, it's pure atmosphere. And another issue is, again, because you couldn't record stuff, you'd go to school the next day, like Steve said. And what would happen is you'd retell the stories in school and it would be mythologized in that yeah. way. And it would become possibly even scarier. It, than it embellished was a little bit as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Definitely. Wasn't there a, a Doctor Who story, Dave, that you... The Seeds of Doom, um, where at the end the guy falls... Don't spoil it for anybody, but then at the end the guy falls into a compost machine and gets chopped to pieces. Now, I remember the blood, the screams, everything. None of that is there because my young mind invented that scene. Yeah. So in my... So, like Sapphire and Steel, things like Doctor Who, in many ways were scarier in my head than they ever were on the screen. And I think that's an issue as well. I think yeah. you know, because you couldn't like wind the video back and watch it again. You couldn't get the DVD off the shelf and freeze frame. Your experience was at the time, it was very in the moment. And then your memories would play tricks on you sometimes. So it'd be even scarier than you thought it was. It really, really was. Though. So I'm going to throw this out there um, and it leads on quite nicely. Uh, we're talking about TV shows and how growing up with TV shows and you know the stuff that children would watch basically. How do you think that um, in the late 70s, 
we're, we're talking about the late 70s is a kind of a, a it is a kind of golden age for for tv shows and you know video recorders are very new and if if you've got one you're very lucky but how do you think that the advent of american tv like for example the six million dollar man barnet woman uh man from atlantis uh gemini man how do you think those tv shows kind of change the way that you know as a kid you're it's like a it's it's a new wave of tv shows do you, how do you think that they sort of changed the way that we sort of looked at tv and sort of enjoyed it as a child i i, I think initially they drew the attention didn't they? i think every because it's a shiny new thing better production advice i don't i think in the end though the possibly the lack of the depth of script i think you, you went back to the things you, yeah. you know you love i mean i mean i think steve tells the story that you got distracted by uh, book rogers away from dr who um, I did, I did, but I went back to Doctor Who. Exactly, yeah. because you, you get, you know, okay, yeah, the, the, the production values are better, the spandex is tighter on rumour and that kind of, but <laughs> you go back because there's just a brilliant idea at the core of Doctor Who, or you go back because, this, you know, the British drama thing triumphs in, at the end of the day because of the strength of those stories, because of the strength of those characters. I think a lot of those American shows you mentioned, they kind of fade a bit. Yeah, in the moment. Yeah. I mean, people come to our shows and they never say, "Oh, do you remember that big thing in the Bionic Woman?" No, hardly anybody ever says that. No, no, it's true. Actually, I, I've yeah. never thought of that, Dave. No one mentions. Yeah, maybe American said, remember, shows oh, until the eighties. Salem's Lot and V. Yeah, yeah. But no one David ever Sol, yeah. mentions. Oh, no, do you remember? Yeah. Oh, do you remember that episode of Man from Atlantis? Never. Yeah. No, Absolutely because never. British shows were always a lot darker. And a yeah. lot more complex, Absolutely. and yeah. there were ramifications that never happened in America. That's what turned me off American shows when I was a kid. I got so excited by the Six Million Dollar Man and Starsky and Hutch and the yeah, Gemini yeah. Man. But, and I understand it now, I understand it in my 20s. There's the syndication thing where they make so many episodes, then it goes into syndication. So the cable channels could just pluck a tape off the shelves at random. Yeah. So there are no ramifications, there are no consequences to these shows. Everything resets at the end of 45 minutes i remember an episode of starsky and Hutch. it's not very paranormal but i remember the first five minutes that um hutch comes into the squad room with his fiance that he's been going out with for a year and even as a kid I went what she's never been in it before and then she gets killed and he's grieving she's never mentioned again for the rest of the series yeah. if that was a british show even in the 70s that character would probably have been built up yeah and the, the her death would have meant something even if yeah. just for an episode or two i mean yeah, I think George, that's the thing george, george carter's wife and sweeney i think she was in a couple of episodes yeah. before she was bumped off and then you see the you know the effect on him in a few episodes later on as well yeah so you've got all these supernatural shows a lot of our shows were um you wouldn't call them series you'd call them serials they were finite they were six episodes and out so you knew things like children of the stones and sky Oh, yeah. the castle um shadows man talk about the yeah. occult shadows i don't yeah. know if you remember this incredible children's anthology supernatural anthology show from the 1970s just brilliant ghost occult witchcraft shows and a lot of them you kind of just about slide a cigarette paper between them and adult similar True. adult dramas the only yeah. thing missing was kind of blood and swearing yeah. but you could put a lot of those shows past the watershed and you wouldn't bat an eyelid there was a show um i'm trying to think of the name of it it was um it was a series it was an episode of a series of shows uh gareth my my late colleague he was well into sort of uh 
early sort of 70s horror. Uh, he had a, a massive library. And he used to send me, like, oh, look at this show, look at that show. And he sent me a link to a show, and it was uh, a group of kids who believed that um, uh, the old man that dug the graves in the graveyard was a vampire. And it was called Vampires, the show. And play for today. Yeah. It's a play for today. Play for I today, that's that it. Yeah, yeah. Last month. It's um, it's set in Liverpool. That's right, yeah, yeah. Proper Scouse actors. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It's a kid who comes from a really troubled home. That's right. Like his um, his stepdad's sound, but his mum's yeah a bit of an alcoholic. Yeah, a bit. Never there for him. Yeah. So he retreats into this fantasy world, and yeah, he sees this kind of grave digger guy and tells his mates he's a vampire. He's, yeah, so they right, all go yeah. out, and it's fantastic. But this is the great twist at the end. It's that kind of although it's uh. If you were a child, you most probably—you know—you could watch it. If you were a child, it's not gory or anything, but it's—it's it's that kind of psychological kind of thing. But at the end, he walks into his mum's room and his his mum's like, "Is she's a vampire? Is that yeah. in his head? She or was that real? Teeth. Yeah, that's a brilliant thing because she's <laughs> built built up as basically an alcoholic and she's um, negligent. And yep. You kind of think, is that how he sees his mum now, or mm. is she an actual vampire? Like you said, it was just—it was incredible. I was. That's part of my 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 question is if you think about um, those that that era, uh, there were a lot of programs like uh, Play for Today and stuff like that that had a lot of uh, supernatural episodes. Um, Dave, I'll start with Dave on this one. Do you uh, have you got any particulars that you uh, that you like? I mean, I love. I mean, the Stone Tape stuff like that. Loved it. Yeah, well, that's the stuff. Stone, again, Stone Tape, absolutely classic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that... Yeah, I think quite, in fact, quite a lot of the shows you, you see in that era, they do rely on the stone tape theory, don't they? Yeah. Quite a lot of them do have ghosts as a product of the. Um, I watched, I watched uh, one actually last night. I watched the Exorc- the Exorcism from Dead of Night. I watched that last night. Right, oh, fantastic. That's, yeah, uh, Ed, Edward Petherbridge and uh, Clive Swift's in that as well. Uh, Sylvia Kay and the woman's name escapes me for the moment. Uh, but it's about where they 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 go. They basically Edward Petherbridge and his wife have bought this house dirt cheap um and then when they get inside they end up locked inside sealed inside it's complete blackness outside that's right Ep- then, excellent episode yes it's absolute yes. and, and the, the end reveal is horrific yep and that's from like 1972 and it's abs- it's you know it stands absolutely stands up now so i would say yeah that absolutely was i would one of my favorites you know i've, I've watched it before but this was a, i watched it again last night just uh getting what you were saying before dave about the theatricality because mm. i watched um the exorcism not so long ago as well and mm. i was struck again and i timed it this time there's a 10 mi- when i can't remember the actress's name gives that enormous monologue when she's possessed mm. 10 minutes long it's basically one shot <laughs> yes, nearly happens, just yeah. slowly zooming in on her face for 10 you couldn't do that now i mean yeah. i i mean i don't know there's all the streaming things they're kind of getting away with murder structurally and yeah. storytelling wise but I can't think of many TV shows these days that would allow a ten-minute monologue. You, yeah, you'd never hold on one, one shot like that, which they would because, like no. I said, again, because they're trying to be more kinetic these days. They're just trying to move yeah. around. You get, you'd be getting more reaction shots. You'd be getting maybe, uh, I don't know, a cut to the, the curtains blowing or something. You'd have something, yeah. to, to, you know, to, to to ramp the scene up a bit. But you don't need it. It's just that that woman's face and that fantastic performance. So, yeah. um. Uh, I have. Uh, you've got. I mean, you, you've not just got one book. You've got two books, and uh, I, th- I think another one on the way. Or th- you've got three books, or two. 
two books with a third on the way later this so year. So how does the second one differ from the first one? What have, what have you added or taken away uh, from the second book rather than the well, first? The, the, second, the second book is... Well, the first book is the 70s. Right. Completely the 70s. And the second book is uh, TV in the 80s. And the reason for that is because the 80s turned out to be such a massive undertaking yeah. that it had to be split into two books. In fact... Thinking about it now, the 70s should probably be split to because we keep finding more and more stuff mm. that we wish we'd put yeah. in. People keep saying, have you seen this? And we went, no, we haven't, but we wish we could. We have because we would have put that in as well. Or the stuff that people on Twitter or Facebook will go, oh, you should have put this in volume one. Yeah. And we'll be like, we would have, but we kind of took mm. it out because we just wanted to do yeah. one. I wish we'd done two books nowadays. Yeah. I really I, do. I think there was, there's, there, well, there's plenty of material to do two books. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so volume three is going to be the equivalent to the second half of volume one. So it's going to be films, books, comics, um, toys and games, um, the paranormal. And it's going to have a book within a book in volume nice. three because we're looking at, you can set as it is during the 1980s when me and Dave were teenagers, it's going to deal with the nuclear anxiety of oh. the time. So we're going to deal with, there's going to be a section within the book that just deals with nuclear war themed films, nuclear war themed TV shows, comics, books, um, video games, board games, you name it. Protect and Survive, that was it. That was the, sh that yeah. was the show they made us watch at school. Uh, wow. I, if you hear the sirens lie in the gutter, and if you're at home, get behind a door and you'll be fine. Um, That's the yeah, one. Apparently uh, you'll be all right for a <laughs> nuclear blast. But it was very much like that in the 80s, wasn't it? It was very sort of uh, on the cusp. Any moment we were going we to all be sort of, you know, instantly vaporized and uh I, I think back now and i remember leaflets being handed through the door of of how to survive an attack and also um i live in a, i live in western supermare so a little seaside coastal town and uh i remember the air raid sirens being tested once a week that sirens would go off uh as a a precaution that if you heard the siren, i don't know where you went if the sirens went off i just i don't know because there wasn't any air raid showers <laughs> Well, I, I, I live quite close to Port Sunlight where there's a Leaf Brothers factory which makes like soap powder and stuff like that. And every morning at 8.45am they would sound an air raid sound to announce the start of the working day. So I face nuclear annihilation <laughs> every morning. Every single morning of my teenage life. Uh, what about you, Stephen? Did you, uh, what's your thoughts on, on the, uh, on the um, sort of uh, the Cold War era? A huge, huge, huge part of my teenage years. I mean, we talk about this at the live shows. Um, our third member of our group, uh, Bob Fisher, who writes for 40 and Times, he's an ex-BBC presenter, a radio presenter. But um, he had the same experience as me. Between 1983 and 1984, start of 1985, I spent every single day of my life anxious, literally yes. anxious, yes. wondering if that was going to be I mean, I could have a, a laugh with my mates. I could be going to see Ghostbusters. I could be yeah. playing football in the park. But at the back of my head Always, was yeah. the thought, is it going to happen today? I didn't mm. think I was going to see live to see 1990. That was out of the question. The, the, the question was, when was it going to happen? Not if. Yeah. So it was I basically I had my first panic attack, age 13, lying awake in bed one night, worrying about nuclear war. There are. This is a thing. Dave made this point at one of our live shows. We've kept it in. I think. I think. Yeah. That there's two 1980s. There's two nostalgias. There's the one. There's the Stranger Things 1980s. Yeah. That's D and D and Testarossa 
cars and neon grids and Miami Vice. And there's yep. one that we remember in Britain, which is Boys from the Black Stuff and AIDS and nuclear war and mass unemployment. Yeah. And it was a the pop culture was bright and brilliant and bouncy in the music and the films. But life was horrible. <laughs> it was a grim time to be alive, man. But yeah. we had we had one good thing. We had um I believe at the early eighties was it Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Um, oh yes, and we had the Unexplained magazine. So uh, yes, same what, year. What are your thoughts on on those? Because that's one of my favourite things. I think I've still got my volumes. Well, well, go go on, Dave. You tell it. Okay, you tell I, I was going to say, well, Steve, Steve recently uh, got a complete run of the Unexplained. We uh, he he bought them on eBay, and it was basically like a drug deal going down. We had to go to a car park in Midnight. Uh, and pick these volumes up and we um we drove into the car park and there was a guy standing by his car in an empty car park and he looked at us and we we looked at him and he nodded and we nodded and then we pulled up his head and then he opened the boot and still likens it to that scene in Pulp Fiction where the suitcase opens it's like this golden light I think. yeah yeah <laughs> He's, uh, 13 volumes of the unexplained in his boot um, he, he was a former um news agent wasn't he and he'd, he'd, he'd collect yeah. things and he was getting rid of all his, his old collections yeah, I, I mean, I, I at the time I bought Unexplained as well. Uh, my 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 worst fear wasn't issue one and the EVP. My worst fear was the spontaneous human combustion. Yes, in, uh, issue two. Oh, mine too. Mine yeah, too. Where I, I used to lie awake at night thinking that my legs were getting too warm, which is which is dumb because you see the photos, your legs are the only thing that survives. I'm, so. la- I'm laughing because <laughs> I I took that episode, I took that uh, um, copy to her at school. And I was going around from my mates going, here, do you want to see an old lady's leg that's been burnt? And I'd show them the picture. <laughs> this is the thing. My thing is, I've, this is the thing. I've, I've been fascinated, obsessed, let's say, with the, the, the paranormal yeah. since before I can remember. So anything to do with that, even now, I'm, I'm there in a shot. So these TV adverts appear for The Unexplained mm. on ITV when I'm 10. I still remember they're on YouTube now, but it's kind of that kind of circular laser yes. light wall and an ominous voice saying, listing UFOs, ghosts, the unexplained. And I'm like, right, I am there, local news agents over the road, my mum and dad's. And I can't remember. The Usborne Book of the Ghosts is a separate thing for me. That's yes. the scariest book I had ever read in my life. The Unexplained was the scariest magazine I'd ever read. I got volume one, yeah, issue one. And I was, I could barely look at some of those pictures, mm. some of those pages. Went back for issue two, again, spontaneous human combustion, no. And I tapped out at issue three, even though I was aching to read this magazine because it was too scary. The UFO stories were unbearably creepy with those weird, crude color pencil drawings yeah. i don't know if you Home remember drawn. those really weird yeah. aliens yeah so the whole thing just exuded creepiness eeriness and it's got that thing that this is real yes. but it kind of it has a very forensic almost academic tone to the writing to me as a child and i couldn't deal with it <laughs> it was basically saying ghosts are real ufos are real Spontaneous human combustion is real. Here's the, it went into the science behind some of it as well. So as a 10-year-old, it was too much for me. At the oh, same time, I was watching Arthur C. Clarke every yeah. week as well. So I went to, I had a few sleepless nights, slept with the light on. Uh, and you, Dave, did you have any sleepless nights watching uh, 
Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Mysterious I, World. I, I found it immensely reassuring at the end. He go, yeah, that was all rubbish, that was. Just, just basically... I'm all right. I'm in Sri Lanka. It's lovely and warm. Yeah, exactly. I'm in Sri See Lanka. you next yeah. week. <laughs> I invented the communication satellites. I know what I'm talking about. That used to do my head in every week, that, because I was <laughs> utterly credulous. So I was absolutely wrapped watching this show about stigmata or ghosts or poltergeists or whatever. Yep. And then he'd turn up at the end and go, nah, it's all bollocks. I was like, oh, shaking yeah, my fist at the screen. No, no, it isn't. Some of it creeped me out anyway. I mean, that that thing, you know, that thing they get from the sea, I think it's like, is it like a, a shark's carcass or something like that? They say it is, but there's, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. That's a horrible image, no matter what it was. Yeah, partly yeah. eaten and stuff, yeah. Yeah that, yeah, that got me, that got me a bit. Yeah, and as I say, obviously, spontaneous human combustion, things like that. Many a sleepless night, and I don't think Arthur C. Clarke helped in me in any way whatsoever. <laughs> so uh, I, I know both of you have a, a keen interest in the paranormal, uh, and um, yes, obviously we, we're talking about everything to do with the occult. Uh, what are your thoughts on the paranormal? Uh, do you do you actively research in any way? Have you ever been to a haunted house, or have you ever had any experiences with the paranormal? Uh, well, well uh, as, as for my attitude to it, I am... Um willing to be convinced i wouldn't say i was a believer in things like that i wouldn't say i was i um didn't believe i was i would just say i'm prepared to listen to what people yeah, that's, say that's good. Um, and um judge it on its own merit i do have two there's, there's two that's fine uh, there's two things uh when i was i live i still live in the house that i was brought up in um which i inherited once my parents uh, died um and when i was very little about maybe six years old my nan, who was was an Irish lady, who was the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter and, and claimed to have psychic powers to see beyond the veil, she said to me as a little boy, she said, you know, in your house, there's always somebody standing at the top of your stairs. <laughs> that is God. not something you want to say to no, a six-year-old. Not really. So, yeah, that, 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 that was worse. That was worse than the spontaneous human question. That was me not sleeping for about a year after that. Uh, and the second one is again. This is this happened to me, and I can't explain it. Um, a few years back, um, I was clearing out the loft in this house that was built in the nineteen thirties, um, and I had a. It's that long ago. I had a portable CD player that I was going to take up into the loft and play play tunes while I was working. And I had two CDs. I had a swing music CD from the thirties, and I had uh, and now that's what I call music in the loft. The the now that's what I call music CD would not play just refused to play. When I brought it back down again, it played fine on, in, on the landing, but when I went back in the loft, it wouldn't play. The only music that would play in the loft was music from the 1930s. That's a bit which weird. Which is kind of freaky. Yeah, that is a bit weird. weird. Can't explain that. And I can't, can't explain that. You never got, you you never got to the bottom of it, Dave. You never... No, never. I don't understand why that happened. The, the, seed, the, the, music, the pop music CD played absolutely fine when you came down like because I had a ladder, came down a ladder, CD played fine. Went back up, wouldn't play. Uh, have you experienced anything further in the house regarding sort of weirdness? You, you sometimes, I, I don't know, it's an old house, so it settles at night and you hear creaks and that. Sometimes, you know, you feel, you, you hear creaks that sound like yeah. you're walking up the stairs or, but I, I, not not especially, no. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to believe about that. I mean, I want, I want oh, sorry, I've just thought of the third thing. I once found all my my shoes piled into a pyramid. That's weird. Right, and, you, sti and you still live there? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, but all my shoes were piled up, like you know, like five shoes, then four shoes, then three shoes, like that. Blimey, that's a wow. bit. Uh... Don't know why. I didn't do it. I certainly didn't do it. That's 
that wow. I, I, I have a panic attack when I can't find my keys. I think something's... Uh, I, they've, <laughs> they've aported <laughs> somewhere. They've there's, gone. There's, there's a ghost here. They're very kindly arranging machines for me, so, you know, I can't complain about that. Uh, and, and you, Stephen, what, what's uh, your, uh, your uh, experience with the paranormal? Well, like I say, I've been fascinated since uh, literally before I can remember. And when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and especially when I was in my 20s, the decade of the X-Files, yeah. my, I was completely credulous. I just believed everything I wanted to believe. Yeah. Now, I'd describe it. I'm definitely a believer because I've experienced stuff that I can't explain. No one can explain. My outlook on it is I just think there's a lot more out there than we understand. I think it can be... I don't know if I'd call it supernatural. This is the thing. I don't think I believe in the supernatural. I just believe in things that we haven't explained through science yet. Yeah. And there's just too much out there to just shut down and say these people are all lying. These people are all deranged. These things are all atmospheric disturbances because they explain the vast majority of these things, but they don't explain them all. And I mean, when you've got, when you've reached the point where the American government finally came out and said, yeah, there are UFOs, they exist. We don't know what they are. They're intelligently controlled. They're up there. They're on radar. And our pilots are seeing them every other day. That, where do you go from there? That's basically... Well, <laughs> I, w- I was going to ask that question regarding UFOs because um, with, with the recent um, hearings in America, I, I, of course, I watched it. And what the one thing I took away from it was real, there were a lot of official people there going, yeah, here's a video. This is a picture uh, but we don't know anything, so uh, that's the end of that. There's some pictures, but that's yeah. about it. There's not enough information. We don't have enough data. And, and I think that when you hear governments, officials say that, when you go back all of the years with all the the UFO phenomenon that's happened, all the pictures, now, okay, I will say that there's a lot of it that's maybe misidentified and people see things and they're confused by what they see or they, you know, they sort of don't remember it. But there are, are an awful lot of cases out there that people see stuff and it, it is completely unexplained. And, and when I'm, I'm not getting all weird, but when somebody in a suit who works for the government says there's nothing to worry about here, I usually I get a little bit worried. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, the American government, especially, has got form for not telling people. I mean, I'll always remember this. I remember seeing an interview with an American general in, I think it was the 80s, early 90s. Could be wrong. It was a long time ago. And he basically talked about the unveiling of the stealth bomber. Yeah. And he said, the reason we unveiled it to the public was because it was obsolete as far as we were concerned. We were yeah. already flying the next one. Old so tech, it was safe yeah. to put it out. Yeah, old tech. So, I mean, I'll tell you about my experience in a bit. Yeah. But this is the thing. Where I am now is I would call myself a skeptical believer. That's I do good. think there's a lot out there, but I, I no longer just read something and go, oh, I kind of read something and go, really? I need a bit more yeah. than your hearsay. To, and my, like, I've just finished rereading an incredible book by a journalist called Will Storr, who is kind of quite a young guy, but well, no, I think he's in his 30s, 40s now, but he kind of writes books that he wrote a book about um social media in the 21st century how it's turned us all into narcissists yeah in some form or another he's quite a deep writer he's a brilliant yeah, Will brilliant Stall, yeah he he wrote but, uh will Stall versus the uh, paranormal that's what i've just yeah. finished rereading for the second time because yeah. it's so entertaining and the thing the reason the things i find compelling now like i 
I kind of used to love reading UFO books and ghost books by people who were immersed in the folklore, immersed in the community. I just find them exhausting now because they're coming in with an agenda, because they believe from the outset. Yeah. I'm more compelled by writers who don't have a horse in the game. Like Will Storr comes into this book saying, I've got absolutely no interest at all in the paranormal, which is why I'm writing this book. Yeah. And he goes from being disinterested to being skeptical to a believer to being skeptical again. And at the end, he basically his summation was, How can you not believe in this? He doesn't know what it is. And he his thing is my thing, as in I think the answer to all these questions is I don't know. I don't know what these things are. I can't say they're aliens. I can't say they're from another planet. No one yeah. knows this. The three big questions that faces as a species are is there a God? What happens when we die? And are we alone in the universe? And we don't know the answers to any of those questions. No. And that's that's exciting to me. So I approach this thing because I find it entertaining. And I find a fine testimony or investigations from people who aren't immersed in... Like if there's a haunting, I'm not as interested in hearing what the people at the heart of the haunting have to say. I'm more interested in the neighbors yeah. and their friends. Yeah. Because they haven't got a horse in that game. Yeah. So that's where my skeptical believer thing comes in. Having said that, <laughs> I'll tell you about the time I saw a massive black triangle in Liverpool city centre in broad daylight. It was 1996 and the Euro 96 football tournament was on. And I used to go out clubbing to the, the crazy house. It was an alternative club in Liverpool every yeah, right. Thursday with me mates. Yeah. Um, at that point, I was 26, and it was the week. It was midsummer week, so it was kind of broad daylight by half four in the morning. Now, at the time, all the clubs used to shut at two in the morning, but they had special dispensation around the country to open till four, so everyone could go and watch these matches that were on at like midnight or one o'clock. So I was out clubbing with my mates till four. We spilled out of this club. There's a street in Liverpool city centre called Slater Street, just around the corner from... Bold Street, which is where I used to work, Forbidden Planet. And there was a burger place. There was a fast food place on a corner that we stopped off for food on the way home. Now, two of my friends were inside this place getting their order. And I was chatting to two more of my mates outside. And they were kind of looking, facing the window and kind of rapping on it and distracting my mates. And I was kind of chatting away. To this day, I don't know. I mean, I'd been drinking water all night. I wasn't drunk completely sober, didn't take drugs, completely straight. I don't know what made me do it, but I turned around and looked up in time to see a massive black triangle float over Slater Street, completely silently and so smooth, straight over the street and over the buildings. um, It was like jet black, no reflections. There was a big red light, circular red light in the middle, and there was little blue lights on each tip. And the street was kind of deserted. It was, it's not now like with you, you, the clubs come out and city centres are teeming. Yeah. Most people just went home. So there was the odd pisshead stumbling around on Slater Street. And I swear to God, Reeves, I could have turned round to my mates. They were less than a foot away and grabbed them by the arm. I was so shocked. I was rooted to the spot. Yeah, just watching it go over 
I didn't talk to them. I sprinted down to the end of the road and turned right and went up, ran, sprinted as fast as I could up Ball Street, looking over the rooftops to see where it had gone, right to the top of this road where it opens out completely. And it wasn't there. So I start walking back to my friends thinking, did that just happen? Yeah. Did I, re- did I really just see that? So I'm kind of shell-shocked. My mates obviously see me go, well, where the f- did you go? You just sprinted away for no reason. I lied. I said, oh, I saw a friend from school I hadn't seen in years. Got talking to them because I couldn't bring myself to tell them what I'd seen. So I walked home that night. It was broad daylight. It was like half four in the morning. Got home about quarter past five in the morning. And all the time, all I could think about was that. Did that just happen? And I've never stopped thinking about it to this day. It's it can't you can't help but have your outlook changed when you see something. Yeah. So it's there. It's not. So, I mean, I had to rationalise it. Eventually, told me mates a week later, and rationalised it as in what we were just talking about as a top secret military plane. This is the next one after the stealth bomber. But there's a postscript to this story about. Oh, God, I'm trying to think. Time's so weird now. I think it must have been seven, eight, maybe nine years ago. There was a guy we knew. He was an American guy. He was one of the uh, one of our customers who um, used to come in with his son. But he was a, a doorman on the pubs around Liverpool. He used to work at security and Tesco's and stuff. But he came running into the shop, Forbidden Planet, one afternoon, Wednesday afternoon. And kind of was like, Steve, Steve, I told him about the UFO. And he said, I've just been chatting to one of the other doormen who works on one of the pubs on Slater Street. We got chatting about UFOs. And he goes, yeah, Larry, you'll never believe this one. 1996, middle of summer, Euro 96 was on. I'm having a smoke outside this place. Look up and I see this massive black triangle go over. And it was the same thing, same yeah, night. Yeah. So there was that almost that validation. I, I, God knows. I, this is the answer. I don't know what it was. I had a friend that was walking home one night, like yourself. He'd been out. He was been out with walking, walked his girlfriend home. He was walking home, walking down a small, you know, the 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 laneways between the houses. And he he walks down this laneway, and it's an L shape, right? And he walks down this laneway. As he gets halfway down this laneway, there's this ball of light hovering at the bottom of the lane, size of a football, glowing. And he just stops dead. He thought it was a carrier bag to start with, blowing in the wind, but there was no wind. And this is the dead of night. It was sort of one in the morning, two in the morning. It was very early. And it was just hovering there. And then it hovered away past the hedge and out of sight down the other side of the lane. And he carefully walked down to the end of the lane and looked around the corner and it wasn't there anymore. And he said it was the most weirdest thing that he'd ever... I think he witnessed something like ball lightning. That's what I think he witnessed. And all these things that people witness, I mean, if you go back to... You mentioned it earlier. I think it was you or Dave mentioned it. The advent of shows like The X-Files in the 90s and that, all those kind of TV shows you had, your, your Strange But True. Do you think in any yeah. way that that kind of, uh, kind of pushed forward the, the paranormal kind of uh, consciousness of, uh, you know, the, the, the mainly pop culture? Because everything was, you know, everything was Mulder and Scully, wasn't it? Everybody, everybody wanted to be either Mulder or, Mulder or Scully back then. And it was like, Absolutely. you know, I want to believe sort of thing. Do you think that had a lot to do with it, those kind of shows? Oh, huge. The X-Files was mm. a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't yeah. just, it wasn't like Game of Thrones, which is just huge and everyone watches it and then it ends and then 
off your pop. It had a huge, huge impact on popular culture because if I think back to the 90s, I think back to Britpop and uh, Labour government and blah, 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 and everyone yeah, yeah. was out and getting drunk and ecstasy. But the other thing I think about was they were the, that was the paranormal decade. Yeah. That was, Crop you circles. couldn't move for documentaries. You couldn't yeah. move for local news reports. You couldn't move for magazines. The paranormal was everywhere, everywhere. And even down to things like Take Me to Your Dealer and Schwa. I don't know if you remember Schwa, the kind of, it was like a fashion label type thing that had that gray alien, the gray alien. Head vaguely, yeah, yeah, Whitley Strieber, yeah, yeah, Whitley Strieber has yeah. coined that with the grey, yeah. I mean, space raiders, uh, outer spaces, whatever they're calling the crisps. Was it? Is it space raiders? Uh, outer spaces. Yeah, they changed their packaging from kind of 2000 AD style comic strip artwork to a grey alien in the 90s. Yeah, it was everywhere because of the X Files. That's great. So, I was going to say to you, Dave. Um, uh, a second add-on, because I know that you're, you, I mean, I can see from behind you, you're quite a big sci-fi fan. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just a little bit. That's a great collection. <laughs> uh, I wanted to add on to uh, you with Star Trek and shows like that. How do you think that they kind of, did they, do you think they took from, you know, the the, the pop culture, the sci-fi, because everything kind of evolved really quickly and we got into this, you know, I think that things, people observe things and then they filter it through their own experiences of what they know. So I think inevitably, once you've got things like Star Trek or X-Files, they're going to couch what they've seen in terms of that. They're going mm. to say, oh, it was a grey alien or it was, you know, somebody beamed down. Yeah, I was just, sorry, I was just thinking about a couple of other examples. That's of fine, yeah. have told me things that they've seen. Yeah, yeah. Again, there's, there's, both of these are, again, inexplicable. Sorry, not unexplained, not inexplicable. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad, many years ago, was walking back from the pub and he saw a flaming cross in the sky. What? Again, a flaming cross in the sky. Not a man given to fa uh, fancy or anything like that. He, and again, he didn't watch these shows. He didn't yeah, watch yeah. that. He didn't, so he wasn't filtering it through any sort of, oh, look at that, that must be from the Xbox. Um, and the second one is my cousin, again, um, a woman who's not given to fancy, very down to earth. Um, she lived uh, in a very old house uh, in the town where I live. Uh, I pointed out to you the other week, didn't I stay there? This little old house. Yeah, yeah. It's an 18th century, tiny, tiny house. You can tell it's really old because it's tiny. It's not like a modern, bigger house. It's like you know, low ceilings, that kind of thing. Uh, and she claims, again, no reason to tell lies, no reason to embellish, that she once walked into her own living room and there was a little old lady sitting in a rocking chair rocking slowly backwards and forwards. And Lovely. my cousin wasn't, didn't even own a rocking chair, never mind a little old lady. You know, so... This house <laughs> is old. So, I mean, maybe that is stone tape again. But the point I'm making is, I think they they weren't any, in any way inspired by the TV shows yeah. they were watching. They, were, they, they weren't influenced into thinking it was, was going to be something from the X-Files or something from Star Trek or something from Doctor Who or right. whatever. Um, although I do think that people do try and, they try and process things in a way that they've seen. So you know, in, in, in when you used to get all those the flying saucer films in the 50s, people yeah. saw flying saucers. And then later on when people's visions of what um, alien spaceships look like, the, the, the images that they saw changed. Yeah, so I think, true. Yeah, 
people are processing things in ways that they can comprehend. Absolutely. That's what you do when you face the incomprehensible. You try and comprehend it the way you, you know, you've seen. So I'm well, as I'd, I'd like to say, I've been reading about UFOs. That's my main interest. I love, I'm fascinated by UFOs, the whole mythology. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I realize that a huge proportion of it is folklore. Yes. As in. It does, yeah. Stories that change over time and yeah. they don't stand still. And it's exactly what Dave said. It's because their experiences, if they're having them, are filtered through the times that they're living in. So you, as Dave says, you get those kind of classic flying saucers from the 1940s and 50s, the Space Brothers, the Venusians yep. with long hair and the beautiful. And then you've got you kind of that period in the 60s and 70s the, that the unexplained deals with where every UFO alien report, it's almost like no two are the same. They're all different. It's just like a menagerie of aliens. Yep. Then you get to 1986-87, Whitley Strieber's communion comes out, yep. and that image, that face is locked in forever. Yep. The grey alien comes from the front of that book. Everything in pop culture, South Park, The X-Files, you name it, comes from communion. And now we're at a point where every time someone sees a UFO or has an abduction experience, whatever they claim to have, it's always the grey alien. 99% yep. of the time, because they filtered that image through several layers of pop culture history. I, um... And you very rarely seem to get the kind of, it had bat wings and black skin. It had a great big bulbous head. Yes. It was on all fours. It just doesn't seem to happen anymore mm. because of communion. So that's another thing that my skepticism kicks in. Is it, as Dave says, is it, is it our brains trying to comprehend what we're seeing or is it folklore happening I... before our eyes? I think we're on to something there. I think that as a whole, we're on to something. If you go back to uh, medieval times, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, you're talking about folklore. There's a story from uh, medieval, I think it's Ireland, where villagers witnessed a, a ship in the sky, an actual sail yeah. ship. And the yeah. individuals on board threw an anchor down and swam down to them uh, and greeted them and swam back up to the ship. And you think, well, that's a bit weird. But in those days, they always, um, they they kind of looked at the sky as a different a different place a place that had its own atmosphere its own place so it's only natural that they would think well maybe you know you can sail a ship up there and it's and as you're saying maybe in in culture we have this kind of mindset where we project what had the way that we understand something for example the old days when the uh explorers would go out and they would go out on their 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 sailing ships and they'd go all around the world and they would meet tribes from from thousands of miles away and faraway places and they would uh, go and they would trade with them and they'd go into the tribe and say you know what they tribe would say well how did you get here and, you know travel here how did you get and they would show them the ships and that the tribes could not see the ships only until they put them in boats and rowed them out to the ships so they could become aware of them because they didn't know what a ship was they'd never seen a ship before so that their, their brains weren't able to process what it was they were meant to be seeing so well, you, you've got oh. sorry dave yeah no I was just about to say, well, you've got things like the cargo cult haven't you yeah where were they yeah the way process the American Air Force being there in the, during the war as being gods, and now they're trying they build these fake airfields to try yeah. and bring the gods back. It's just that's it's how you process things through your own mythology, I guess. As a society, we're more used to seeing strange shaped things in the air and on television. 
So that's filtering through again. We're, we're, the latest thing is the Tic Tac. Yeah. That's the number one. Everyone talks about the Tic Tac shaped UFO. I noticed Tic Tac's latest advertising campaign is take a ride on a Tic Tac because they fi- <laughs> finally took advantage <laughs> of the fact that everyone <laughs> is talking about the Tic Tac UFO, which is brilliant. I do think that our technology is evolving faster than our brains are. I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, on on um, Twitter the other day, chemtrails were were trending again, and I just, oh, uh, Dave, yes, I, I'm not I getting, lost I'm brain not cells. Yeah, no, I know. Well, what I'm saying is that people are looking at like technology and the advanced yeah. technology, and they're processing it through like maybe a more primitive view, uh, you know, in, in terms of just what, what their experience is. So I, th- I think that's an issue as well. I think you're seeing things that maybe are super advanced or you're seeing things you don't entirely understand yourself. And I think it's easier then to buy into like, oh, it's this or it's, it's there's a conspiracy involving this. And I just think that's an issue with it as well. I think that's an issue with the yeah. reporting of paranormal events as well. Since I was a kid, um, the first UFO book I ever bought was J. Allen Hynek's The UFO Experience yes. when I was about... Eight. My favourite film of all time is Close Encounters. Oh, great! Changed film. my life. Yeah. And off the back of that, I bought the UFO experience. It was too dry for me, but a lot of it absolutely terrified me. Some of the accounts in there. Yeah. And it's what Dave was saying. It's it's that filter. It's that kind of this thing is too much for me to comprehend. I don't understand atmospheric science, so I'm going to say it's the government creating chemtrails. And it's, it's exactly what you're saying, Dave. It's a natural phenomenon. But mm. the same thing filters through into everything like conspiracy theory, ufology. Mm. My my interest now is kind of like the, the, there's things happening. We don't know what it yeah. is. The governments have owned up to it. There's an amazing, I think he's an Australian reporter called Ross Coulthard. I'm right. reading his book at the moment. And he's another one. He's a heavyweight, really respected American journalist, uh, Australian journalist. But he decided to investigate UFOs. He did again, didn't have a horse in the game, but he's a skeptical believer. His his line again and again is there's something happening. The the weight of evidence is incontrovertible, but I won't believe that they're alien spacecraft until I've kicked its tires myself. Everything else is speculation. Yeah. But that's the thing. It's I am more like kind of there is something happening in the sky. We nobody knows what it is. It's all speculation. And I start to become exhausted by the things that used to I used to love when I was in my twenties. When people start linking things to kind of the American government working with grey aliens in a base in Dulcie, I just kind of yeah. go, "Oh, right, okay, really." Right, I used to love all that, but now I can only enjoy that as a kind of an X Files, yeah, the, the Dulce Wars science yeah. fiction thing. Yeah, I just I can't buy into that. I, I remember mainly because there is no evidence. Apparently, there's a uh, there's a there's a hatch out in the desert, but it's, it's shaped like a rock, so you've got to know which rock to find, and then you can get into the. I was reading about that last <laughs> night in that book. Um... <laughs> but uh, but the thing was, uh, I was going to ask either of you um, was regards aliens, regards uh, uh, other worlds, and whoever's might be visiting us. What what do you think their agenda is? What why are they why are they coming here? What why are we so special? What do you think? You know what have we got to offer apart from our amazing TV shows from the seventies? Okay, do I believe there's life on other planets? Yes, obviously. I think the universe is so big it would be insane to think we were the only people, the only they were the only creatures, the only living yeah. sentient beings in the universe. As to whether they're visiting here, I I am not, I am not sure. 
Um, and to answer your question, why are we special? I think that's the thing. I don't think we are particularly special. I think the history of humanity is gradually realizing we're not as special as we thought we were. Oh, we're the center of the universe. Oh, no, we're not. Oh, we're the center of the universe. Oh, actually, no, we're not. You know, I mean, I mean, I don't want to get too heavy on this religion, but people who believe themselves created in the image of God have some issues with thinking they're a bit special. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I yeah. think if aliens are coming in, again, I'm not dismissing the possibility. If aliens are coming in, I think it's because we're life and we're fascinated with other life. And we're fascinated with our people out there. Are there other people? Are there other beings out there? So if they're coming here, it's because we're alive and we're sentient and you know, and we're interested yeah. and we're curious. And I'd say that's why. And as as for belief, I think I'm always going to be a skeptic because I believe the only dangerous people in the world are people who are sure. Yeah. It's people yeah. who are certain in their beliefs. They're the dangerous people. They're the ones who burn the books. And skepticism is the way to approach any of this. I think you've you've got you've got to think, yeah, okay, that could that could happen. But I want to I want to you know I don't want to ruin the magic of it. But I want to know more about that so I can make a, a more informed judgment. But yeah, I think if aliens are coming here, it's because we're sentient and because we are. That that's that's not our special gift, but it's, you know, it's that's why they'd be coming here. I think. Stephen? I'm the same as Dave. I I I'm like I say a skeptical believer. I've been reading about this subject my entire life. There's this is the thing people say. Well, where's the evidence? There's the Fermi paradox again. I was reading about that again last night. I don't, do you know about that, Dave? I, I I'm not sure. <laughs> Just tell me what it okay. is. I'll, I'll you know. It's. It's the, I can't remember his full name. It was a, I think it was a psychologist or something. I'm terrible with details, but in the seventies, he came up with a paradox, a question that has never been answered. It's apparently it proves that the aliens aren't visiting. His question was, if the, if aliens are out there and he's not doubting that they are, where are they? Why haven't we met them? And I think it's the worst question ever. I think it's the most arrogant. You can blow it out the water in two seconds. It's going, yeah. It just instantly pre presumes that they're not. And that's, I agree with Dave. The most dangerous person in the world is someone who's sure, and yeah. it works the other way. Someone who's a complete skeptic is just as dangerous as someone who's a complete believer. And Will Storr talks about that at length in his book. Yeah. When he's going on his kind of journey about Lenin, going, Jesus Christ, my, he's a religious person as well. He grew up a Catholic in a Catholic house, massively lapsed. So he's questioning everything. And he realizes at one point that complete skeptics, debunkers, they're just as in the dark as anyone. But they're scared because if one of these cases turns out to be true, that's your reality gone. That's your world crumbled. Hmm. So the out-and-out -out skeptic is just as bad as the out-and-out -out Fox Mulder, the credulous one. So I'm kind of in the middle. I'm completely open to this. There's too much. Like there's a, I think it's in, oh no, there's another book called Aliens and Why They're Here. By Again, by a Times-Telegraph New Yorker journalist who has no stake in this no interest he just thought well because i've got no interest i'm gonna research ufos and just see what happens yeah and his book is split into two one he asks questions and he goes into all the big cases no matter how ridiculous he basically goes i'm going to treat this on the same level as a journalist and the second half of the book is coming up with hypotheses. Every hypothesis from Carl Jung, we're imagining it, it's the collective unconscious, yeah. to nuts and bolts. It's just something as mundane as there are people in the universe who are older than us, and they live over there, and they've got better cars, better planes than us. Yeah, That's mundane. That's really boring when you put it like that. And it's really weird because he doesn't give 
his own views away at all. It's why I find it so compelling. He just attacks it straight down the middle until the second to last page. He says, I started as kind of, it's just an interesting subject to write about, became completely skeptical halfway through my research. And again, came to the end, just went, how can you not believe this? And it's purely because of the mountains of evidence that he's seen. He interviews a, I think it's in that book, the interviews a police detective at one point, because he's interested in the whole idea of circumstantial evidence which is true, it's all circumstantial. Every video, every picture, it's all circumstantial until one of them does land on the White House lawn. There's no yeah. reason why they should, because why is the White House so bleeding important? They wouldn't know what the White House is, but it's the cliche. So until that moment comes, it's all circumstantial. And this detective goes, oh no, people are routinely convicted of murder on mountains of circumstantial evidence because the mountain becomes so big, it becomes almost hard evidence. And this journalist like, oh, wow. So he said, if you're talking about this detective, like if you're talking about UFOs, then if there's a mountain of circumstantial evidence, you've got to listen to some of it. And that's where I am. That's my belief. As to why they're here, I completely agree with Dave. It's, you spin the question around and say, well, if we were out in our flying ships in the galaxy, and if we came across intelligent life, do you honestly think we're going to go, Oh, there's an intelligent civilization there. Eh, anyway, let's turn around and go on. Yeah. You're gonna go, let's let's study them in the same way that you you see a tribe in the middle of nowhere in the, the jungle. You keep your distance. If we're going from that assumption, as Dave said, if we're assuming they exist, it's because we're life. We're not special, but we are life. Mm. There's even the theory that they're going, oh God, the monkeys, the intelligent monkeys can kill themselves with these big bombs now. So now we're gonna keep extra special tabs on them which yeah. is the theory that comes up again and again as to why UFO sightings erupted from 1940. From the, yeah, atom bomb, yeah. But, yeah, I think it's it's as mundane as that. We're life, and they found us, and they want to have a look. Well, guys, uh, that was uh, absolutely fascinating, and unfortunately, I think we've come to the end of the episode, but... Uh... Uh, we, we should go on all night. This yeah, is what we, we always can, I, I think we're going to. I think we're going to have to do a part two at some point because uh, there's just not no, enough time in the day. Oh yeah. I I want to know on I, my. Oh, I didn't. didn't Sorry tell you about my haunted shop, Reeves. But we'll oh do no, no, no. Actually, we're going to. I, I want to hear the haunted shop. Uh, I need to go stories. Oh, I used to work in Forbidden Planet in Bold Street in yep. Liverpool. Almost from the off, I worked from 1997 to 2020, and. The safe is in this horrible, it looks like something from Blair Witch. The basement, the, the safe will be in the basement and it will be someone's job who would pull the short straw at the end of every working day to take the cash, take the money down to the safe and yeah. lock it in there. And you couldn't help it, you know. It's one of those things, you go down the creaky wooden stairs, you immediately feel like the swan behind you. Oh, yeah. So you just kind of sprint downstairs, do the safe stuff quickly as possible with the flickering dim lights. And you're running up the stairs again because you feel like someone's behind you. And everyone said the same thing. Everyone who worked there, and there were some real skeptics. One of my closest friends, Chris, he's the ex-manager of the Forbidden Planet. Yep. He's the most, you'll back me up, Dave, is he the, not the most skeptical man? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You, There's no nonsense. Uh, yeah. yeah. Salt of the earth, straight down the middle. It's all a load of crap. And yet he's told me stories of the stuff that he's experienced in there. But he still doesn't believe the ghosts, as in the spirits of the dead. My own experience, this is the one that I, it could be anything, but it freaked me out. 
it was a Saturday afternoon about 2000, 2001. I was upstairs on my own in the staff area, which adjoins the kitchen and it adjoins the stockroom. Just reading a comic and having a cuppa and eating my dinner, completely silent. And suddenly I hear footsteps coming from the stockroom into the room that I'm in. Right. And it goes into the kitchen. And it's not a case of, I wonder what that noise was. All I remember is every hair on my body standing on end. And suddenly I was sprinting down the stairs halfway through my dinner. Didn't go back up there. And everyone was like, what's wrong with you? You've got half an hour left on your dinner. And I was like, no, 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 I, I, I feel a bit ill or whatever. I made whatever <laughs> excuse. Didn't tell anyone for ages because I heard something, someone walk through three rooms. But having said that, the older I get, I think that's, there's about 100 explanations for that, if I'm being honest. Because the shop adjoined yeah. a cafe on one side, there's another shop on the other. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But assistant manager Dave used to go clubbing in town. He lived lived in Runcorn, so he'd go gigging and clubbing on a Friday, Saturday sometimes. But he'd miss the last bus home, so he'd stay over at the shop. And he used to tell us about just stuff that he would hear beyond the shop settling. That would freak him out in his little sleeping bag in the stock uh, the staff room but the one that got me because all of these things can be put down to kind of your brain working overtime of yeah. course it's two o'clock in the afternoon uh, two o'clock in the morning yeah in a creaky old shop of course you're going to start hearing things but the one that gets me is chris our skeptical manager in the middle of a big refit in 2010 the chief kind of buildings and maintenance guy from head office in London comes up for the weekend to sort out some of the refit. And we're working away. Everyone else goes home. And Chris and Lawrence, the guy from head office, who were both skeptics, both salt of the earth, no interest in the paranormal at all, stay behind till about 10 o'clock, working on bits of the shop. Now, the shop is short at like half five, six o'clock. And bearing in mind, there's only been those two on the shop floor working away for four hours, three or four hours. So Chris goes to the toilet upstairs and Lawrence, the guy from head office, is up a ladder working on some of the lights. And he sees movements out the corner of his eye and looks around and sees a guy walking around the shop with kind of a bowler hat on, a big waxed moustache, dressed like he's from the 1920s. Weird. And carrying a wooden camera tripod over his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Now, Lawrence, being salt of the earth, doesn't think, shit, it's a ghost. He shouts at this guy, Oi, we shut four hours ago. <laughs> How did you get in here? <laughs> he doesn't care. He's basically swearing at this guy. He's like, we're shut. And this guy ignores him. So Lawrence comes down off his ladder and we've got kind of at that point we had quite high shelving it was above head height so he's going around the shelving around the shop no one there now you need to open this heavy you'll know yourself Dave this heavy wooden door and lift a noisy shutter to get out of the shop none of those things happened this guy dressed like he was in the 20s with a wooden tripod had gone so that's the point where Lawrence shits himself yeah. and Chris comes back down from go in the toilet and says to Lawrence, like, what, what's up? You seem a bit in a state. Lawrence tells him what happened. And even it got to Chris a little bit because Lawrence is so rational. It, he kind of 
the pair of them were like, oh, okay, right. Now, Chris went on and did a bit of digging because that was it. Dave, the assistant manager, one day he was on his own in the stockroom um, trying to find a toy for a customer that wasn't on the shop floor since we had it in stock. Right. Sees movement out the corner of his eye, looks over and sees an old woman in a white dress go past the door. And again, he doesn't think, oh my God, it's a ghost. He just thinks it's an old woman, a pensioner. Yeah. Who's got confused and thinks the shop's on two floors, bless her. So he basically says, oh, I'm really sorry, love, but this isn't part of the shop. This is our staff area, yeah. stockroom. Gonna have to go back downstairs, no reply. So Dave goes out to the stockroom, looks in the, the staff area, looks in the kitchen. There's nobody there. There's no footsteps, nothing. And he clearly saw an old woman in a white dress go past. Now, we collate all these stories over the years. And Chris does a bit of, our manager does a bit of digging into yeah. the history of 92 Bold Street on the internet. It turns out that before it was Forbidden Planet, it was a bridal wear shop. Lots of white dresses there. And way back in the 20s, it was a photographic studio. Yep. And it was a photographic studio with a HMV dog listening to the gramophone. Right. That photograph was taken upstairs on that site. So even Chris is like, shit, mm. a, a guy dressed like he's from the 20s with a camera tripod. The story gets weirder because there's just weird stuff going on and a weird vibe in that shop, like downstairs in the basement. And we all feel it, even though we're joking about it. And Chris and Colin are really skeptical and it's and it could be anything. <laughs> this is the weird bit. One of Chris's mates, Andy, is his Andy's wife says she's a Wiccan, a witch. Uh-huh. And she's like, I'll come in the shop after hours and I'll do some blah, 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 blah. And I'll get rid of the ghosts. So even we're all like, yeah, okay, cool. Like we, I don't believe it. No one believes it. That's a step far too far for any of us. But Chris is like, you know, oh God, whatever. It's going to be a laugh. So she comes in the shop and does whatever it is she does. I've gone home by this point. I'm not interested. And the next day, we're all like that. Okay, Chris, well, what happened? What happened? And Chris is like, right, she reckons there's three ghosts in the shop. There's an old guy from World War II. There's a young teenager called Billy who's a bit mischievous and a little girl. And we're like, okay, because this is a bit much for all of us. But Chris is like, but she did whatever she did. I couldn't understand any of it. And she reckons they're all gone now. They've gone to peace. And I swear to God, and my rational side of my brain, the 99% of me that's thinking this rationally is because I've been told that that's why we didn't feel anything yeah. afterwards. But not one of us felt anything after that day. Nothing. Weird. And like Bizarre. I say, it's probably to me, it's because we were told they're gone. So we were like, ah, do yeah. you know what? But we talked about it. It was a while later. We went, have you heard, felt anything? Do you still feel someone behind you? And like, no, 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 I don't feel that anymore. And I'm like, Oh, well, I, I don't know. Like I say, it's, I don't know. That's, I don't that's know. a weird one. That's a weird story. That's a bit spooky. Well, it's a fact that if you met him, you'd understand. I, yeah. I can't I can't explain enough how sceptical Chris is. Absolutely, yeah. And Lawrence. I've met Lawrence loads of times. He's like an Arthur Daly character. He's not asked about ghosts. Yeah. He just wants a pint. Sometimes. And it, it rattled him. I spoke to him about it. He was like, Dad, I don't want to talk about it. I think that's the thing, though, isn't it, Steve? I mean, the, the, the people you believe most, the people who've got, like you say, no no horse in the in the, in the the game, whatever, in the race, uh, you know, the, yeah. my dad wasn't given to fa- uh, fancy. My, my cousin wasn't. And anybody who's told me anything like that, 
as never not not sort of person who would exaggerate yeah. or embellish anything they'd seen. They were just down to earth people, and, and that makes the story all the more believable and stuff all more inexplicable. Yeah. Well, there's definitely uh there's there's definitely another episode of Paratalk here. Uh I, I think that we have oh, to delve to. deeper Absolutely. into the, the ghost phenomenon and uh, uh start to uh do do something well, like that because this <laughs> Well there's loads of T V shows and <laughs> yeah. comics yeah. and basically of all pop pop culture that was kind of occult and oh, yeah. supernaturally this is this is the thing, Dave. We've had an idea for a future Scarred for Life book. Uh, God mm. knows when this is going to happen, but the Scarred for Life book of the paranormal, but we're not going to look at the paranormal. We want to look at the way the paranormal was portrayed, portrayed yeah. on yeah, television, in comics, documentaries. It's one thing we found, haven't we, Dave, that you look at BBC documentaries from the 70s and 80s, and they're just full of gravitas and a very quality. sedate. Yeah, quality. And uh... nowadays, it's kind of people on green screen. Yeah in old houses screaming at each other because they've just seen some dust or an insect on the camera and it's like, oh. Or, or if they do do a paranormal story in the news, it'll be at the end where you usually get the one about the duck skateboarding and things like that. <laughs> you know, but back in the day, it would be like further up the news, the, yeah. the news items in a more serious position. You know, it's not, it, it's, it didn't used to be, and finally, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe we could come back and talk about that. Definitely. I mean, subject um, just the way these things were portrayed yeah. was... We're gonna we're gonna have to uh, get you back on and talk about uh, the classic seventies documentaries at forty minutes and stuff, where they would go to Borley mm. Borley Church and do a whole documentary about ghosts and stuff. Yeah, uh, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. We're definitely gonna have to do There's that. There's a great one about spontaneous human combustion yeah. from the eighties. Oh, don't say that. You... <laughs> have you, <laughs> have you seen it? Being okay again. <laughs> definitely. There's a QED. Would, uh... They go. They try and go into the science of it. They try and explain yeah. it. It's fascinating. Yeah, so the slow burning pig. Yeah. Uh, I've seen that's that the one. one. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of oozing fat. It's horrible. Uh, it's, oh, well, it's quite horrible, <laughs> but uh, it, it some of it is uh, very it's scientific, but some of it does answer a few questions. But uh, uh, I definitely uh, another episode is on the cards for um, paranormal uh, television shows. Yeah, and that. I, I we can't get enough of this. Uh, I, I, some of the listeners are going to love this because uh, they're a little bit like me. I, I'm I'm Mister Stuck in the eighties and seventies. I'm always going on about it, but. Uh, it's nice to sort of talk to people who have actually done something and put put a book together and kind of catalogued it. I, I was going to ask you, um, but you kind of answered my question. My final question was, what what is your new project? Have you got something you can talk about that's on the cards? But you've already you've kind of answered it, haven't you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, well we've, we've, we've got this. So volume three is a work in progress. We've got, we've got other ideas. We've got other ideas. I mean, it's no secret that we're th- talking about doing like a sort of horror anthology kind of thing, sort of a scarred yeah. flight horror anthology. And there's there's other stuff again we can't really talk about yet because there's well, yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a lot on there's, our plates, haven't we, Steve? Yeah, well, we've got the live shows. It's the live shows. Yeah. We've got it's the we've got South Shield, the Customs House. Let me show you if I've got this right. The Customs House Theatre in right. South Shields on the twenty third. 23rd of June, 23rd of June. So we've got yeah. that to come. But like Dave said, yeah, we've got the um, Scott Flight Book of Horror Stories in the vein of the Pan Book of Horror Stories. Yeah, to come. Cool. We've got a Scott for Life annual, hopefully mm-hmm. next year, which is going to be like the old hardback. Oh yeah, yeah. Annuals that you used to get as a kid. Yeah. But like I say, we've got plenty of ideas for future books. Well, yeah, if you do, uh, if you do do an annual, okay, 
just make sure that you've got the price in the bottom right hand corner so that we oh, can cut it out. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and this book belongs to that's a, oh, that's yeah, that's this going book in. belongs to don't you worry. <laughs> you, remember, you remember when your granny and mum would always cut the price out? And you think, why'd you do that? Yeah. I don't care how much you, you've ruined it now. It's it's you know, it's it's not real, yeah. it's not whole. But yeah, I never understood that till I was in my 20s. I was yeah. like, oh, they didn't the want me price, to know that it was don't want to know how much you paid for it. It was seventy five pence. You're younger than me. When it, when, it, when it was my annuals, it was like two shillings and sixpence. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> I'm pretty decimal still. You know? Well, actually, I bought I a. Getting, uh, I, I, I went into a chat. I love going around charity shops looking for stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, I bought a Battlestar Galactica uh, annual from nineteen. What was it? Nineteen seventy whatever. When it came out, it was from the the original, not the remake. Oh, the original oh, Battlestar. Seventy eight, seventy nine. Yeah, yeah. seventy eight, yeah. I think. And it was the annual from from that the, the you know of the story. And I thought I had it. I was moving, and I thought I, I wish I kept it. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to put this on eBay. Uh, I'm just going to put it on eBay for like fifty pence because I only bought it for like twenty five pence. Eighteen pounds it sold that. for. I tell you, I've that's still got mine. I didn't know it was that much. Sort Look after. <laughs> I tell you what, you wow. want to keep hold of that. <laughs> I am. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, fantastic. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank, thank you, you Dave. Thank you, Steve. Um, Pleasure. I'm definitely. We're gonna arrange, we're gonna get some sword and get you back because uh, oh, this is great. Uh, you've uh, this is an excellent excellent chat, and um, I hope all the listeners uh, enjoyed it because as much as I did. And um, well, all I can say is uh, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>